Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Starting with verse 11 through 24. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them out into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between my sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? and to drink of clear water, that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet, and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder, and thrust at all the weak with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken." The New Testament reading is from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. 
When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on a, in a bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net up, uh, ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, is it, who is it that is going to betray you? And Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it was my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that could be written. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pastor Craig. I happened to catch an interesting uh, show on the radio this week. Uh, that was talking about sort of the, the rise of AI and then new technology and all these things and, and comparing it to uh, religion as if it is our sort of 
new religion, and, and they, were, uh, they mentioned how in Islam you're expected to, to pray five times a day, but if you were to compare that to how many times the average person checks their phone, which some studies say like up to 300 times a day, uh, then the new technology is surely winning out. It is a more powerful religion, right? Uh, and I'm, I know this is, this is nothing new. We live in a very distracted world, a very distracted uh, age. Uh, one, one article described it, or one study described it as continuous partial attention. That is what we are all plagued with. And if you are right now checking your phone, it's proof. Uh, I put my phone on do not disturb from 10.30 to 12, in case you're wondering, on Sundays. So I won't check it, at least for an hour and a half. But if you think about that, continuous partial attention, it's as if we never really are present. We're never really able to pay attention to what we're supposed to be paying attention to, and then, of course, then there comes a bunch of other books and studies on this is how you get deep focus, and this is how you can accomplish deep reading or deep work or whatever. I think part of the challenge is, is not just the basic fact that you can't really pay attention well. We all have short attention spans, but there's also this Illusion that we are still in charge, that even if I'm checking my phone, scrolling through things, looking at things, whatever, we're still the ones deciding. Like we're still the ones in charge of our destiny. And this podcast actually quoted maybe what you thought was from a Christian, but it's actually from an atheist playwright, George Bernard Shaw, who said, the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince us that he doesn't exist. And he said, that's basically what tech companies have done. We think we're the ones in charge deciding what comes on our, net, on our newsfeed, but we're not. We're not in charge. We're actually just the, we are, if it's free, then you are the product, as they say. We're the ones sort of at the whims of our own technology. Well, I mention all of this because not only is this Certainly a challenge for anyone living in today's culture, but it's absolutely a challenge if you're trying to follow Jesus. How many of you, how many of all of us try to pray and you sit down and it doesn't take but 10 seconds until your mind starts to wander, you start thinking about what you need to do later in the day or some interaction that you had that you regret, whatever it may be. It is a sort of plague that we need to think about and try to fight. But as we jump into this final chapter and this refrain from Jesus, follow me, I want us to consider why we ought to do that and what that should look like. So let's pray and we'll jump into it. God, we do thank you for this day and we do ask that you would give us the attention span needed to hear from you, to hear from your word by the power of your spirit. May you focus our hearts and minds that we would live just as you have created us to live, which is in 
communion with you and submission to you, living our whole lives to your glory. May we hear from you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are, in fact, in the final chapter in the Gospel of John. We started way back in September, and I have to say, maybe it's true for you also, it's a little bittersweet uh, that, that we are finishing this up, uh, but we are in the final chapter. You may have thought that last chapter was the end with the way it ended, but I think what we have here in chapter 21 is a sort of epilogue uh, for the mission of the church. It's as if he's tying up some loose ends, especially with Peter and especially with the beloved disciple about what now? We've had this incredible magnitude of the resurrection of Jesus. He has appeared to them. He has appeared to, of all people, women first, remember, in the ancient world. And then you have Thomas's exclamation of, my Lord and my God. So it seems like we have this grand conclusion of who Christ is, the signs that pointed to who he is, as the end of 20 says. But we should be left with sort of, now what? What about that guy who denied Jesus? What about the beloved disciple? What are they to do? And we have repeated, follow me. Follow me is actually not something that occurs much in the Gospel of John. And only the most astute reader would have remembered it. It's only back in chapter 1. One of the first things Jesus ever says to Philip is, follow me. It's almost as if he's wanting them, and I think also with the fishing, he's wanting them to remember everything from the beginning, from the beginning of your life, is now new. To follow Jesus means to renew everything. And so we need to learn what it means to follow Jesus. And I want to start with simply seeing that we need, first and foremost, to be fed. We need to be fed by Jesus. He prepares a meal Obviously in a strange way, but he, also, he is preparing a meal for them. And eating is not a new metaphor. They should be uh, reminded after he does the feeding of the 5,000, after he walks on water and declares that he is the Lord God of the Old Testament, he then says strange things like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Do not work for the food that perishes, this is back in chapter 6, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For, as Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The bread that I will give for the flesh of the Son of Man. The bread, the bread that I give... For the life of the world is my flesh. To be fed by Jesus is certainly not something new for the disciples. It's also not something new that apart from Jesus they can do nothing. Back in chapter 15 he tells them that. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. It feels like Jesus is almost toying with them. 
doesn't it? He lets them fish and not find anything first. As if to say, this is, this is what life is like without me. And then when he comes to them, calling them endearingly, he calls them children. And he says, have you found any? And then tells them to cast them down on the other side. And they pull up a humongous amount of fish. He feeds them miraculously. We don't know where he gets the bread, but he feeds them miraculously. We're told that, he, that they catch 153 fish. Oddly specific, right? Clearly it's meant to be a huge number. I think it's also meant to be specific because it's meant to say this is from someone who was there, an eyewitness, who counted it. For any of you Bible nerds, we can geek out later if you want. I think it might be symbolic and tying back to Ezekiel 47 and the, the water that comes from the temple that turns the Dead Sea into fresh water. But I won't go into those details now. Clearly, we are meant to see this miraculous catch of fish as Jesus saying, I and I alone am the bread of life. It may be hard for us to believe something like this, but at this point in the Gospel of John, you can believe this. If he can be raised from the dead, bring Lazarus back to life, all sorts of other things, surely he can get some fish from a lake. So first to follow after Jesus is, it's very important to simply be fed by him. Our mission is to never leave Jesus behind. Sometimes maybe you think that. Or the church can act like that. Jesus did his thing way back. Now it's our time. And we're going to do what we need to do to continue that. But that's really a, a, a false way to look at it. We are always, which is partly why we weekly take the Lord's Supper, we are always being fed and need to be fed by Jesus. Evangelism, as I've quoted in the past, one person described it as evangelism as one beggar saying to another beggar on the street, come, I have found a feast. We all need to be fed by Jesus. We will not outgrow our need for him. But then we see this amazing restoration. So first we're fed by Jesus, then we are Restored by Jesus. Think about Peter. Good old Peter. Three times he denies Jesus. After he says, I will never deny you. And after he says, I'm even willing to die for you, Jesus. Back before the cross. Now Jesus comes to restore him. You got to think like, try to imagine, what was Peter's mindset at this point? We're not told a whole lot. He's seen the Lord resurrected. Maybe he's starting to figure some things out. But still probably confused and still probably racked with shame and embarrassment, right? This was the lead disciple. He was the one who would never deny Jesus. 
I'm going to go with you to the end. And then when he's asked, even by a little slave girl, he's not willing to say that he was among Jesus' disciples. He's surely totally ashamed. And so Peter, sorry, so Jesus comes. He has a charcoal fire. Why does he have a charcoal fire? Because Peter, when Jesus is being flogged and when he is being tried in this mock trial before the high priest, Peter is outside warming himself by a charcoal fire. It's an image of where Peter denied him. And so Jesus comes, prepares a charcoal fire, puts fish and bread on it, and then three times asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus is so incredibly gentle, so incredibly thoughtful. We are meant to see a beautiful, beautiful scene here, restoring Peter to the shepherd, to be the under-shepherd on behalf of Jesus. The one who surely thought maybe he'll get to heaven, but he is worthless. Such a beautiful picture. And Peter, we know, seems to have learned pretty well what it meant to be a shepherd. It certainly meant that he had to stay humble, to continually be fed by Jesus, because apparently he told a lot of people about his denial. It's in every gospel. It's one of those details that is, all, is in all four gospels. The chief shepherd, the leader of the early church, is humble enough for this to be publicized throughout the world as the one who denied him, Jesus he writes in 1 Peter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not for shameful gain, not under compulsion, but eagerly, not domineering, and then he turns and says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter is humble enough to be restored. He is humble enough to share his own tragic failings. And that is part and parcel of what it means to be a shepherd. And so this is clearly not just for Peter, this restoration. There is nothing about the grace of the gospel that says this is only supposed to be applied to Peter. He had a unique sort of cheap shepherd role, sure, but this applies to all of us, whether we are in shepherding roles or not. We are all in some sort of ministry role, but this is true even if you are not a Christian. This type of restoration 
is offered to you to be restored to God is the fundamental problem that we need solved. So what is your charcoal fire? Where do you need to be restored? To be convinced that yes, Jesus does love you. He is your good shepherd and you can go out in his name and proclaim that. Maybe it's specific, maybe it's that ultimate sort of restoration, but it is a restoration that is offered to you, no matter who you are. So he is, we see that the disciples are being fed by Jesus, being restored by Jesus, and then I want to look at two more points. First, to die with Jesus. To follow, if you're going to follow, it means you're going to die. That's exactly what he says to Peter. After Peter's restoration, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Perfect, perfect summary of that famous Bonhoeffer quote, what Jesus says to all of us, come and die. Follow after me means come and die. This is not, this is not new, shouldn't be new to Peter, he says it over and over throughout the Gospels. He says it in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, the grain of wheat that must first fall to the ground and die, that it may bear much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other places, Jesus puts it as, you must renounce everything and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow me simply means leave everything else behind. Leave every assumption that you had about God, about purpose, about the meaning of life, leave it behind. Your lust for power, your desire for a great reputation, your political prejudices, your uncontrollable desire for comfort, whatever it is, we are called to leave it all behind to follow Jesus. This is very clear. This is not a small part of the Gospels or of Christianity. It is everywhere. As a book I actually just was reading, kids' Christian book, I was just reading to the kids last night. They called it God Math. If you heard of God Math, where God tells Gideon to like reduce the soldiers because you have too many, lest humans get the glory. Another God Math equation that they had in there God plus nothing equals everything. And then they had the reverse as well. Everything minus God equals nothing. 
If you have everything, in everything that this world has to offer to you, if you have it all apart from Jesus, it is worthless. But you have poor Peter. He gets this amazing restoration. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Come and follow me. And the very next verse, the very next verse, Peter turned. Where is, why are you turning around? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. What is he doing? Why do you think he now is concerned? It seems like Jesus and Peter are starting to walk somewhere. They're walking and right away, Peter says, yeah, but what about this guy? Is he also going to have to die? Peter. Why? We're not quite sure why. Maybe Peter is afraid of death. Maybe he's insecure still, which he can be, we can understand, right? Maybe he's envious, he's insecure himself, whatever it is about him. But Jesus says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Think about that phrase. What is that to you? You follow me. Stop being distracted, Peter. What is that to you? You follow me. We'll get to what I think he means about the beloved disciple, but first, we got to realize how are we so often like Peter? Immediately distracted. I think sometimes we are involuntarily distracted and other times it's voluntary, right? Involuntary is sort of the tech stuff. We don't even realize we're doing it. And if it's not tech, there's other habits in our lives that maybe we have done for 30, 40 more years that we haven't questioned at all. We just assume because we've done it that long, we ought to. Well, bring that involuntary habit into your awareness, and reevaluate it. Try to see, is this something I should keep doing every night or every day? You are without excuse just because you've been habituated into it. I'm reminded of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith what are those distractions that you need to evaluate sometimes they're outright sin and evil and sometimes they are good things perfectly good in and of themselves Peter was a fisherman there's nothing wrong for him going fishing. But if it distracts you from Jesus, if it leads you to sin, you have taken a good thing and made it evil. 
this is something all of us need to consider, this laser focus on Jesus. And I'm reminded, actually, by cycling races, bicycling races. Sometimes what you need is this absolute, full-on devotion. Today is the last day of the Tour de France. I don't know what happened. Don't worry, no spoilers. There's like two people who know what I'm talking about, but that's all right. They are probably right now sprinting on the Champs-Élysées in Paris for the most famous bike finish in the world. And sometimes, especially after you've ridden like 100 miles every day for three weeks, you are riding. What you need to realize about bicycling is the number one thing in all of strategy is drafting. So if you are behind someone, then that person who is taking the wind for you could be doing up to 30% more work than you, okay? It's a lot harder to be in front than anywhere behind. Which means if you're in a lot of pain and you're behind and all of a sudden you fall back a little bit, you now have to face the wind yourself. So if you are so tired and so exhausted and your whole body is in pain and you're out of water, sometimes all you see is that little wheel right in front of you that you don't want to lose because if you lose that, you lose all your wind. I've been there. It's painful. All you see is that tiny little wheel. We have one job in this life. To follow Jesus. What is that to you? You follow me. Don't concern yourself about that, Peter. And then, finally, we come to the author of the gospel himself. He has hid himself masterfully throughout the gospel. At the end, we read, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. We know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You know, the gospel writer never tells us his name. Do you believe that? It was circulated in the early church always with the title above it as the Gospel of John, but he never tells us in the Gospel itself. And I think finally we know why. The very last verses, we know why. Because it's not about him. It's about his witness. So I think what Jesus means when he says, he's going to stay until I come, it doesn't mean he's going to stay until he comes, parousia, as a man that John isn't going to die, as it's clarified in our passage. It means his witness is going to stay. His testimony is going to stay. And remember, witness in the Greek is literally martyr. Because they realized to witness ultimately, especially as an early Christian, ultimately to witness 
is to die. It is to die. Often, literally. And then, in the third century, they actually started talking about there's two types of martyrdom, two types of martyrs. There's the red and white martyrs. The red martyrs is the typical, by blood, you're facing the beasts in the arena, and you are confronted with physical death itself. But the white martyrdom is the martyrdom of conscience, the martyrdom of the poverty of spirit, the martyrdom of purity. For a lot of them, it meant becoming monks, but they knew it meant it applied to everyone. That no one is outside this universal call to witness, which means you are not outside the call to die. To witness simply is to die to your old self and focus your attention, your desire, your hope and comfort on Jesus. Witness, we think, is automatically some kind of argument. And it may be arguments. And it may be apologetics. But it's only after we have died. Died to our selfishness. Died to our desire for comfort. There's a quote from a pastor from the last century that I had on my window. It's on preaching, but I think it applies to anyone who is a Christian who simply wants to minister and share Jesus. From the moment that you stand there, dead in Christ, this guy's name is William Still, by the way. From the moment that you stand there, dead in Christ and dead to everything that you are and have and ever shall be and have, every breath you breathe thereafter, every thought you think, every word you say, indeed you do, they must be done over the top of your own corpse, reaching over it in your preaching to others. Then it can only be Jesus that comes over and no one else. Just as Paul says, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is that to you, Peter? You follow me. Do you follow? Do you find the bread of life in Jesus? Or do you find it in the million distractions that we are bombarded with? In this information overload that we certainly cannot handle. That will destroy us if we let it. Or do you follow after Jesus? Because there is nothing like it. He is life, eternal life, the bread of life from whom we will never truly hunger. Amen. Let's prepare to be fed once again at his table. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, 
or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.